start some teaching from the the Buddha's first discourse the, called the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta the discourse that set in motion the wheel of the law, the wheel of truth, the wheel of the Dhamma which uh, I've alluded to now, I, don't, I haven't got a book because this one is one that uh, the monks learn by heart to recite and chant Bahat because it's it's such a key teaching, and uh, it's not it's not uh, a superficial teaching. It goes very deep. Sometimes it isn't used very deeply. It's used in a cursory way. But in in uh, when taken in context of meditation, it's a it's something you can use for a lifetime. Because in meditation, through the power of, of focused awareness, you begin to see more fully and deeply into the, uh, con- the layers, the, the perceptual layers, the, the moods and feelings, all of the, the attitudes, the drives and impulses that uh, we take to be ourselves, and set up stress, anguish, doubt, discontentment and this this teaching tells you how to deal with them in fact you could just use this teaching alone <clears throat> so um, during the, this retreat then your meditation is to cultivate this uh, sense of, of steady focusing awareness, focusing attention. And then you have to actually use the teachings in that. You keep focusing then, uh, or, or, and your attitude is not, is not educated or wise, then you still come from the, the habitual attitude, where it is to see something, to find something, to have something, to know something. And we're still looking for something. And of course, uh, uh, we find various things, but they all come and go, don't they? And the retreat ends, and there's times when we meditate and times when we don't. So that even whatever we find, whatever we're able to see or focus on in our meditation, or even the states of, of uh, calm that come through the meditation are, are very transient and ephemeral. And you feel even more disappointed when you don't have them. Or when it's time to take out the garbage, or wash the dishes, or cook the food, or walk the dog, or things. 
so that uh, the Buddha himself practiced uh, very powerful means of concentration and focusing awareness for several years. He got it absolutely flawless, the supreme um, concentration powers he could master. And he found it didn't actually go anywhere beyond uh, the mundane plane. And what was uh, needed was the realization that he came to about where the suffering really occurs. And that actually the whole uh, process of enlightenment and realization of truth and peace was not finding some particular esoteric thing, but understanding a very simple, common feature to behind all things, or the way that all things are, are recognized or related to, which is through, through attachment, through holding, through grasping. Grasping with liking, grasping with disliking, sticking an attitude onto them. And so that the, the path that he, he evolved and, and talked about and taught was essentially the ways and means to letting go of this very grasping <clears throat> Having realized himself, he then set off to teach those he th who felt he felt would be able to put this this particular teaching into practice. People who who meditated for some time, who were able to uh, to who were quite used to to focusing and stillness and steadiness and and this uh, and this way of, of concentrating the mind. And this woman would say is, is pretty uh, essential. <clears throat> the teaching, as you probably know, deals with the, the four noble truths. The first one, which to, um, to fully understand it, is, is an enlightenment experience in its own right. It gives us a feeling of calm of peacefulness, of steadiness, of, of, of understanding. It leads to, to wisdom, it leads to clarity, it leads to knowing, it leads, leads to awakening and to uh, the peace of Nibbana, just to understand this first one. And uh, the Buddha put this very simply in, this, in the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, that there is suffering and um, the way he explained it was suffering is to be understood. Suffering occurs through wanting what we don't have, not wanting what we do have. It occurs through the, the processes of, of experiencing, feeling uh, associated with aging, creation, birth, which leads to aging and death. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair not getting what we want, association with the disliked, separation from the liked. And in fact, the, the whole constituent makeup of the way we act, these are called the, the five, five aggregates, because this refers to uh, the, uh, the way that, where we're coming from, uh, our basic reality is an unsatisfied one. It's an illusory one. And he said, this must be understood. 
And just to realize that that has to be understood rather than annihilated is, a, is an enlightened experience. Now most people, experience, when they feel uh, discontent or suffering, it's because of something else, isn't it? It may be because our aunts died, or because um, we feel sick, or because we have to do something we don't enjoy doing, or perhaps because somebody shouted at us and, and uh, hurt our feelings. It could be, you know, from ordin- very ordinary things, or it can be quite subtle, like that, that uh, we think too much, or we feel uh, unwanted, or we feel nervous or self-conscious. It can be many things we can find that, that create suffering for us, seemingly. The world is like that, so that once we, we experience life in that way, then we look for places where this won't occur, where we can be strong enough or uh, find some refuge from it. <clears throat> but the, the teaching says, or the, the Buddha expressed it, that this, rather than getting away from it, it has to actually be looked closely at. It has to be approached very clearly focused on. So the, the mind of someone who meditates has this, this refuge, this Buddha-like quality of knowing that we can bring to work, to bear upon, upon suffering. We can look at it in a non, non-judgmental way, want to try to encourage, rather than an anxious, frightened, or irritated way. We can, we can contemplate it from a, a place of coolness. It's like this. This problem must be looked at very squarely. And then we begin to see that the suffering of our aunt dying, or somebody shouting at us, or feeling sick, is because those are things we don't want. The suffering, say, even of the... that we can, uh, we can suffer because of... Uh, for somebody else's behalf, we can suffer because the Amazon rainforests are being cut down. We can experience anguish and despair. But the actual, you're not talking about what's on the level of ethics, about what's right or wrong, or what's fair or just anymore, but just this particular experience. As the Buddha realized through his, own experience, through his own practice that if you understand this experience, you begin to understand how you can let go of the irritation and the despair in the mind to make it so the mind is clear and free and bright. And then, of course, there are two benefits. One, that your own, you have your own stability and ease, and also that your mind is, is in a much clearer way, is able to act in a much clearer way than just if we're, if we're agitated and irritated and confused and upset. To come from a place of coolness and balance where the mind's full potential can be used. The suffering of association with what we dislike, the suffering of, of separation from what we like, not getting what we want. Now, once you, when we understand this, the, the enlightenment of it is that you begin to, to realize that your whole relationship with the world, the phenomenal world, whether it's the physical world around you or even the inner world of your own thoughts and memories, it's that that has to undergo the change. 
it's because you want something out of it and you don't want something out of it that you experience this sense of constant imbalance and unhappiness wherever you go and this is such a, uh, a profound um, and constant experience that even when um, relatively speaking there's no real reason to suffer we, we can experience still extreme forms of it when we say we're physically well enough when, like in these sophisticated western countries where in some ways the, the standard of living is quite high where you know, we, we expect to live until we're 60, 70, 80 whereas you know, in many parts of the world if you get past 40 you're lucky where we expect to have uh, reasonably good health whereas uh, in many countries, of the, most countries of the world in fact you, you die of hunger or disease after uh, a few decades in these, in these countries we experience extreme suffering because our minds can still create the possibilities of something better and we've been we've learned and we've trained ourselves to expect and want and even demand perfection, complete contentment to have no more irritating things so that when uh, life is as it is then we, we, uh, we feel lost and confused and hurt and agitated by it You know, look at the, the suffering of uh, even in this situation what is it when, you, when one comes here you know, how long is it before we find that the situation is suffering it doesn't seem like us it seems if, if only if only say that we got up later or if only we could eat something in the evening or if only there was a little bit of music or if only there was then it would be alright why can't we do it this way? Those kind of, or if only we didn't have pain in our knees, or if only we stopped thinking, or if it was this way or that way, then. It's like that. When it's quiet, we would like it to have something happening. When, it's, when it's, it's, there's something happening, we'd like it to be quiet. We sit, we sit for a long time, we think, oh, it'd be nice to do something. We have to do something, we think, oh, it'd be nice to sit for a while. <laughs> so th th this is the way it is, isn't it? If you have to cook and work, then you think, oh, well, do this boring stuff. I didn't come here to do this. I really need to sit. And if you sit for a while, you think, well, this sitting's quite good, but what I really need is like three months solitary, intensive, silent retreat, then and then you do that and you think, what I really need is um, therapy massage, acupressure and we do that and we think, what we really need is a holiday a holiday, what, what we really need is relationship, a relationship what we really need is something to do, purposeful to do, interesting social work what we really need is 
everybody else to join my organisation, then what we really need is, I wish these people would stop quarrelling and being more, I wish they'd be more harmonious. And what we really need to do is meditate. And what I really need to do is sit. So we go back to sitting. Haven't I been here before? <laughs> so it goes. And we can run around the, the world, the perceptual, conce conceivable world of experience, always feeling that the suffering is because of something outside. Something that uh, we have to change. And uh, the practice of understanding it is to realize that there's no way in which um, life can present, like external phenomena can really be, can make you happy. Meaning people, meaning the world, meaning the political system, meaning food, meaning physical feelings, meaning even the thoughts in your own mind are in the, from the point of view of a Buddha, there's external phenomena. That's not where it's at either. Even the thoughts of your own mind, or even the, the qualities of absorption are not, are still suffering. Even the Buddha said, even like if you have a billion kalpas of unending bliss, that's suffering. So, so even like the, the, what they call the Brahma loka, the level of the, of the highest uh, uh, mind states where they, they Brahma Loka is, is, is uh, symbolized as this um, celestial realm where they experience unending bliss for a billion kalpas. And the Buddha said, that's not where it's at either. In fact, that's really dangerous because you don't, you don't get the sense of urgency to get out of it. Unending bliss is pretty deluding for a billion kalpas anyway. But then it ends and you think, oh, if only I could have one more kalpa, things would be all right. <laughs> so he said actually the human realm is fortunate because with the human realm you never get away from suffering very, for very long it's a really good place for, this, for, this, for, this, uh, for enlightenment it's, it's the best because you never get away from it very long so sooner or later if you're a reflective enough person you realise, wait a minute there's something very fishy about this whole setup and you start to want to look at it. But why is it that, it's, that I get bored when I feel everything's all right and it's, it's okay, I just get bored with it and I want to do something else? What is it that when you set things up and you, you want to be kind and peaceful with people and you want to live in this kind of state of harmony, it always goes wrong. Somebody says something or does something or there's misunderstandings and confusion and... Why is it always like that? And then we begin to realize that this has to be looked at, understood. And the problem, the suffering of it, is our own very personal responsibility. Also, this, in this understanding of it, the Buddha said that even when you're not actually wanting anything, deliberately wanting anything, you know, you actually haven't got a kind of strong desire, 
the feeling of dis-ease is right there in the, in, the, in the assumption of what you are, in what's called the five aggregates, body, uh, perceptions, mind formations, feelings and consciousness. They are unsatisfactory. The body, as you probably have figured out, is, no matter what you do with it, even if you're perfectly healthy, you've got to keep moving around, haven't you, before it gets too painful and wash it, clean it, otherwise it gets loathsome, feed it. And no matter how much you do to it, it still lets you down in the end. Some organ mutinies on you, something goes wrong, bits of it fall off, and it, it falls apart and leaves you in this state of pain. No matter what you do with it, So even when you're quite young and healthy, there's still the, the suffering of physical fatigue and aches and pains and, and twinges and sickness. And there's a lot of suffering around, around the body while we, while we identify with it because, of course, we're all too fat or too thin or too spotty or too lanky or our noses aren't right or our ears aren't right or our eyes are the wrong colour or our hair's wrong and the feet are wrong and we don't walk right. <laughs> has anybody got a perfect body? They're all wrong, aren't they? And then uh, the um, perceptions. This is an interesting one. The way we, the way the immediate perceptions are, 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 are give rise to, to dissatisfaction. Because perception is 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 an assumption. It's a recognition. So when, this this is like when you see something your mind very immediately says, oh, that's a door, that's a carpet, that's a man, that's a woman, that's my friend, that's a... I don't know what that is. And with that, there's, a, there's some kind of... Uh, with that perception, it leaves a trace. It, it makes you feel, well, that's interesting, that's not interesting, um, that's what, something I want, that's something that's, that's frightening, that's something that... We start to actually be trigger programmed into behaving and acting in a certain way. So we actually never fully or very rarely do we ever appreciate something as it is because we have a perception of it. We recognize it as something and we already have decided inwardly what, what we're going to do, how we're going to, how we're going to act in that way. So we get caught up in habits. And you d one develops perceptual habits. What's it like, say, um, when you're uh, just eat, having the food? Um, say, some people suffer enormously when they see monks walking along with their arms bowls and having the food all put in the arms bowl. And then we sit and we chant and it goes cold. Sometimes in, in, uh, in Asian countries, you wait an hour before you actually eat the meal. By which time, the rice and the curries and the cakes have all sort of settle down to this stagnant, cool ooze. <laughs> and you think, where's the suffering? Is the food, is it any, has it changed? It's just that we perceive it in a very different way. I mean, even when you don't eat it yourself, you look at it and you think, oh no, it's horrible. How dare they? What a wrong thing to do. Because you, you have that perception of food should be this way and there's a knife and a fork and the plates and so on. This is nice. And then when it's not that way, 
we feel confused or upset. Things that we don't understand, we feel frightened of, or wary of, nervous about. New things we can feel, uh, either we can feel anxious and self-conscious about. Old things we feel bored with. So all of this, this perceptual world arises because we have never, we very rarely directly experience anything. We always perceive it as something, as meaning something. And we either feel bored with it, weary of it, attracted to it, averse to it, confused by it, nervous about it. You watch, just really contemplate. If you go to somewhere that's very beautiful and your perception of beauty arises, don't you, don't you find that feeling of yearning for it? You remember that one of the, the uh, uh, most uh, profound feelings of suffering, I remember, was, was when I was in, in, uh, in India, in Goa, and I was in this fantastic beach. And it was just beautiful blue sea, sparkling water, uh, beach, palm trees, beautiful sunshine, and this feeling of anguish. Because you realised that there it was and you couldn't have it. You were just there and somehow it was totally ungraspable. It wouldn't enter into you. It was, it was transient, it was ephemeral, and you couldn't have it. The suffering of, uh, with, with people, you ever get that feeling with people you really love and are fond of, how, how you can't actually have them. They, they separate and you can't stop them ageing or feeling discontent or having pain and that, that kind of suffering. So that with things that we like, we have this immediate feeling of wanting it to be a certain way. We can't help do that. And things that we don't like, Right, you know, disease and cancers and, and poverty and war. There's this feeling of dismay and, and anguish about it. Now that's not saying that it, that it, it shouldn't be that way, but, but you're actually look, re- recognizing this, understanding it, so that you learn how to, to not expect and not uh, reject life as it is. It's always been this way, hasn't it? There's the beauty of it, and there's the ugliness of it. There's always been poverty. There's always been death and sickness and love and joy. And the way they affect us has always been that way. But we can, with understanding, we can recognize that. And in recognizing it, the mind becomes still, quiet, and we let go of that perception and the, the mood that arises from it, there becomes a, a sense of coolness, detachment, dispassion. Mind formations, the thoughts and emotions and moods and impulses that we have are suffering, aren't they? In that they never quite, no matter what you do or say, you can never really express anything fully. You can never quite put your finger on anything. It's always a near miss. What you do is always somehow imperfect. And if you're like a a painter or a musician, have you ever done the really perfect thing that you felt 
totally satisfied with and your life was made complete by? Or isn't it all, well, you know, if only I, if only I, this isn't right, that isn't right. Creations are unsatisfactory. Has anybody cooked the perfect meal they felt totally delighted with and it couldn't have been any better? Or wasn't it always, oh, you know, if, if I had just had some olives? The things that we create, physically and mentally, are unsatisfactory. They come and they go, and we can always, always conceive of something better. The mind, the grasping mind, is that which can imagine something better. So as long as that's happening, you're always suffering. As long as there's a grasping mind. And the Buddha said that these, these are all aspects of the grasping mind. The grasping at perceptions, the grasping at thoughts and feelings, the grasping at body. The grasping at, at consciousness itself, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, the, it, wanting it to be a certain way, wanting to, to, to see things, hear things, taste things, see things that are pleasing and not see things that are unpleasing. And like in, even in, when your mind gets quite refined through, through concentration and meditation, you know, you, can, you find yourself extremely upset at, at, uh, at the unsatisfactoriness of things you see, the kind of sloppiness and the untidiness and the little grubby bits and the broken things. The sounds, like we have this fantastic sound equipment now and you get little crackles and warps and twists on it. Oh, not right. Tactile consciousness, none of us are actually being, uh, we, we live very comfortably. Really, like when you, you, uh, you practice meditation in a, in a Thai monastery, you sit on a concrete floor, a marble floor, a wood plank, when you have one little rag in between your backside your knees and that hard, unyielding surface. Yet when we have these cushions, we have to have cushions, five zafus, three, this, that and the other, and it's still not right, is it? <laughs> Tactile consciousness, we get very refined about. So the, the tendency for the mind, and particularly in retreats, this is why the meditation experience is a very insightful one, because you realise that in meditation you start to refine and refine and refine and concentrate and it doesn't get any less suffering. In fact, it gets, sometimes it gets more because your expectation of not suffering is right, is there, goes along with it. I'd find that I, when I was, I could suffer a lot less just going for a walk than when I practiced meditation for, to, to get out of suffering. I'm just kind of, why is it like, why is it that when people do retreats, they, after the retreat, or even during the retreat, they think, oh, I've got to get a break. Somewhere where I can just kind of go for a walk, hang out, flop out, have a rest, have something to eat, go and have a beer, anything, you know, to get out of this, all this peacefulness is driving me crazy. <laughs> why is it like that? Because you're, the, right along with it goes the, the grasping and the expecting and the, the perceptions of, of the possibility of perfection. 
when it's our suffering is understood, one realizes that uh, the second noble truth is that it has to be abandoned. Second noble truth that suffering is because of this restless, grasping thirst, and that it has to be abandoned. You, and that includes the desire, even the desire to get rid of desire, which is another kind of desire, is something you have to abandon. So in our practice of, of, the, uh, of, of Dhamma, we're learning to, to abandon desire rather than annihilate it. Now that, that is a, that's a change. That really is a, that abandonment is a, a very, it has to be learned, trained, abandonment. Because if you go, you go around in the, in the normal way, then you start to perceive, wait a minute, it's because, I think it's because there's something I'm wanting. Therefore, if I can just suppress the sexual desires, the desires for food, the desires for comfort, and just kind of stop all that crummy stuff, yuck, stop it, cut it out, you know, then it will go away. It doesn't, does it? You hold it back for a while and then, ooh, <laughs> comes out again. How long can you hold it all back for? Or just the kind of average little nittering desires of, oh, fancy this, oh, nice, I wonder what's in the newspaper, oh, what's on the radio today? Just want to go somewhere, think something. Why is it that, like, that notice boards get so incredibly fascinating on retreats? Because something to look at and think about and see and read, and it's just something to put in there. I remember spending retreats looking at, looking at wrappers of... of, of Food wrappers, you think, sodium glutinate, <laughs> bicassinate diphosphate. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? <laughs> Why do you look at the back of cornflake packets and read all the silly, trashy commercial stuff? <laughs> Wonderful breakfast. <laughs> Just have something going in there. So that you can see desire is kind of the, the, just this, not even the profound desire, it's just the, the average hunger for, for something to put in. And then how tedious meditation gets when you're sitting there and you've, you know, you've put a lot of effort into, into getting something and you, maybe you get a bit of stillness and, and concentration for a while and then how, how good is that before you think, oh, nice to have it more and then you put, you put more effort into it, you get a bit more, and then eventually you kind of run out of steam, so you sag a bit, and you're back into the, the dithering of the mind, the daily life mind, twittering away, and, oh, this is a drag. <laughs> just this kind of crummy, not even profound traumas, but just the crummy, you know, inane twitterings going on. This is really a drag. And then sitting there with this kind of draggy feeling in your body, slackness, dullness, boring old talk going on again, sitting here, life ticking away forever, getting older, and nothing profound or special, interesting, insightful, wonderful, traumatic happening. Why couldn't I just have a good breakdown, you know, cathart all over the place, or at least be meaningful? <laughs> so the, that, the hunger for some, that's based on feeling that we need or, or some kind of experience. An abandonment and his letting go. 
<coughs> of that desire, desire for four things, desire to become and get and develop into something else, desire to, to annihilate, stop everything, make everything shut up and go away. So in, in meditation we're learning to work with these, just working with these fundamental drives. That means you have to be very patient, doesn't it? And also very, very light to just keep letting go and, and things arise and you just keep letting go and this arises and you just keep watching it, noting it as change and not, not getting caught up in the perceptions. You have ugly thoughts come into your mind and the perception comes up, oh, this is a disaster, I'm going crazy. And then the mind formations come up, stop it, wipe it out, change quick, turn left, turn right, look for the teacher, find somewhere getting out of this one. Mind formations, we act, and so on. Then you get snowed under, thinking there's something wrong with you. But when we recognize that... Uh, this is the way it is, and we're learning to, instead of, of uh, attaching to it, letting go of it, abandoning it. It's like this. And we abandon the grasp, the identification, all of that uh, self-consciousness around experience. And you can do this on the, in meditation, you can, you can practice it in your daily life. You know, you're working in the kitchen and people are going crazy and the milk's boiling over. This is like this, isn't it? Do you intend it to be that way? No. It's like this, so we, we learn to be very patient with it. To not attach to it. To not be caught by it. Because expecting everything to be calm and peaceful and refined and tranquil and harmonious and wonderful and loving all the time is suffering. And actually we don't need it to be that way. We underestimate our, our, our power of freedom, our enlightenment possibilities. But things can be utterly wretched and yet we, don't have, we can be serene and equanimous about it. Even people like, I've noticed that with people dying people dying in extreme pain and anguish and uh, uh, that when they really learn to give up to it and not struggle with it and not complain about it and not feel ashamed or reject it or deny it even through, through that they experience this release and a kind of sense of like a radiance comes into them peacefulness even in, even in that extreme situation because finally, of course, with death, you can't get out. You're right there, pinned up against it. The only way out is letting go. And one of the uh, occupational hazards of being healthy and alive <laughs> is that you can always wriggle out of it. You can always back off. You can always choose not to understand suffering. You always choose to, to move away from it. You can always choose to blame somebody or blame yourself, cop out, criticize, judge, rather than open up to it. So it's a, it's, um, a teaching that requires a, a training in, 
a kind of detachment, what I've been talking about, detachment and dispassion. To know that all of this, uh, these experiences of, of displeasure and pain and, and uh, even the dreariness or the boredom is changing. It comes and it goes and it, it, nature is that way. You don't have to make it that way, it's nature is that way. And it's not self. It's not something that you should expect anything out of or hang your hopes on or base your life upon. It comes and goes and you are not that. The Buddha was able to teach this because he realized that the, the true mind is not suffering. It's not that in that imperfect world but we are in this predicament where we have to witness it. And that witnessing must become clear and bright and light. Abandoned. Now you may think that abandonment means some kind of rejecting or ignoring it. But that would be, that's, a, that's a, uh, the wrong way of understanding it. To reject it is aversion. To just try it, just to say it doesn't matter anymore. You don't care. Or, you can, or ignoring it, looking the other way, is, is rejection. But to abandon means that we're totally conscious, totally aware of, of the way it is, so totally aware that we're no longer complaining about it, and we're no longer resisting it or running away from it. We're actually open to it, and we allow it into us. It requires a, a, a faith. But if you allow the suffering of life, the suffering of the way it is to actually enter right into you, you find it's rather like holding a snowflake. It melts. But when you see it snowing, you don't want to go out there. But when you actually hold a snowflake, it it melts away because you, your mind, in that state of openness, is completely, is the mind of the Buddha. And you don't realize it because you don't trust, you don't have enough faith, and you don't use it. So we rely upon our, our personality mind, our intelligence, and our habits, and our will, and our wishes, and our customs, our desires, what we think. That has to be abandoned for spiritual training. Because there is the, when this is done, then the, the Buddha said there is the, the cessation of suffering. And this is something that he said had to be realized means you have to actually not just think it or imagine it, but you have to really touch it, contact it, abide in it. When there's, when there's no particular uh, expectation or desire or grasping. Naturally, this is something that is, is not so unusual, but it's rather like the, the knowing of the mind. We don't, we don't notice it. You don't notice the times you don't suffer. Because the times you don't suffer, you, you're looking somewhere else. Everything's okay, so we look somewhere else. Because we're so used to working in terms of 
of desire, of wanting, of going somewhere, of becoming something, that when, when things stop and we feel okay, this restlessness arises. And we, well, oh, well, maybe I'll go do something. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, or we think. So the cessation of suffering, when, when there isn't any, you have to actually have to hold your mind into it. It's peculiar that, that, uh, and that the complete truth and peace of the mind is available. You actually have to hold yourself into it because the, the habit is so strong, so constantly engaged to keep looking for something rather than abiding in what you already have. Now look at the times in a day when it, it's just, it's okay. It's not, maybe you don't feel uh, um, enthralled or elated, but there isn't any suffering. And if you look really closely and deeply into that, you'll feel, you'll, you'll, you'll qualify, you'll experience the profundity of that cessation. Notice the times when, you don't, when you're not suffering. And really look into it. Is you can, because in that you notice perhaps profounder, uh, subtler levels, like some kind of worry. Sometimes when you're not suffering, you start to worry, because you think maybe you should be suffering about something. You should be thinking about something, doing something. Things are okay. You think, oh, I wonder if the, wonder if the canary's all right. Um, oh, should I do that? I, when I, I finish my, I have a drink in the morning, I go upstairs and then sit in my room and I think, maybe I should think something. Perhaps I should plan something. Maybe I should start organising something. Maybe I should read something. Do some exercises. Do something. Help somebody. Change something. Do something. <laughs> Don't just sit there not suffering. It's not... Do something about it. Actually, the mind has to be held into that. How is it now? Because then, the, when this is realized, that, the, that one lets go, and there's an abandonment, and a relaxation into the present moment, then from that, the possibilities of action, thought, speech, that's not based on habit, or one's own personal needs and drives, or even one's own perceptions of the world. True, spontaneous, enlightened action arises by itself. It don't have to do it. It happens. And this is in line with truth. Everything actually happens. We don't really do anything. We assume we do things, but really all kinds of processes happen and occur. We're born, we age, thoughts arise, feelings arise, moods arise, happiness arises, unhappiness, it all happens to us. And our true position is one who can retain, hold, sustain enough understanding of the way it is to be able to, to steer it, to be responsive to it to manifest it, to indicate it, but not to create or produce it. So you notice that even, say, when we, when we, are, we feel we're being compassionate and trying to help, 
that behind that there's often a lot of worry. Or in no, in, when the, notice in inactivism, how difficult it is not to feel irritated and coming from a feeling of anger and resentment when you want to make things right, cure things, help things. You, you're still, you still experience suffering. It's not joyous and free. There's a despair behind a lot of, of activism, isn't there? And we would, we would assume, well, of course there is, but, but because most people have never really under, uh, followed the Buddha's teaching that completely to realize it's quite possible to act fully, completely, compassionately, tirelessly, but do it joyfully, lovingly, and with serenity. That way has to be cultivated. This is the fourth noble truth. So in this, notice we're not talking about any particular thing to have or any viewpoint to take that you should or shouldn't be this way or you must stop this or start that. But the way, a way to be lived, be cultivated, a way of of abandoning, a way of of really noticing based on, on just being more fully clearly aware of of the mainsprings of your own life. Not just these outward events of it, but where, what really makes you tick. Where, where, it really, where you really feel your life occurring with its sadness and its hope and its faith and its sorrow. Where that really is. It's a very deep teaching because if you look at it just on the surface, it, it sounds so do this, do that, stop this, stop that, cultivate this, do this, do that. And you do it from the kind of head level, but you don't actually allow it to, to work through you. So that this, this teaching has to be experienced in this way. You must first of all really learn to open to the, to the, the unsatisfied, the things that are slightly wrong, that feeling of not being there yet, of, not, of something being off, or of people not being right, or of the situation not being good enough, or having too much of this to do, or not enough of that. And look at the core, the root feeling of that. Understand it, open to it, and see that, and you begin to reflect a lot, like how, how, how this is a repeated process in life. And then when you, as you understand it, you realize that you may, you may begin to realize that there's always behind it, there's a, a wishing and a wanting, an idealism and a hoping and a not wanting. And that that can be, we can abandon that. If we really make the commitment, if we really determine to not shift, to not change, to not cop out and wriggle and run away and blame and criticize and blame ourselves and indulge in that way, then the mind will open, we will abandon that source of suffering. And marvelously, wonderfully, effortlessly, without any kind of doing it on our behalf, when there's that surrender and that opening it stops. The waves die down, and there is this uh, 
experience of great peace. Uh, in, in the, one can imagine this as being, well, that's all right for me. You know, I've got my bit now. I finally got it. I went through that ordeal, but now I got it. There it is. I knew I'd get something out of it eventually. So I just kept, it was tough work, but finally I got it. And then, of course, we've lost it again, haven't we? So that this, the cultivation means that even when, when we get it, we realize that any sign of getting has to be abandoned. You always abandon that feeling of having attained or got somewhere. You keep that going. So <clears throat> the cessation is to be realized not as having, as where it came from. So we always understand this, this tendency, this kind of itchiness to hold and grasp and have. And we keep working on on letting go. So that the, the path is one of, which is very loving and compassionate. It's a very radiant quality, the cultivation. It's not a, a kind of, a, well, I got mine. Tough luck. Or you go get yours. And this is the way that the Buddha lived. We can always take our example from the, the Buddha himself and his enlightened disciples. Now you consider, like you look at the, the way that the, the monks live, you must think we must be really heavy dudes, really kind of hard, tough line stuff to manage to suppress all our desires or we've annihilated them all. Spent years thumping it away and I finally annihilated every kind of desire so now I just granite right the way through. I don't feel a thing. <laughs> but that, that's, um, that's, there's nothing wonderful about that. You know, to, it's not human, is it? The lightness, the beauty of it is to, to become even more exquisitely sensitive, light, free and joyous, even more vulnerable in some ways, and yet to become like a cloud through which all kinds of darts and pains and impingements can come, but they just go right through because there's nobody there to hold it anymore. We've let go. We've let go of the identification with body and mind. We've let go of the grasping, the self-consciousness and the, the self-demand in our thoughts and perceptions and moods and feelings in our body. We recognize that these are phenomena that come and go, they're not ours, they change. As you practice your meditation today, or just living mindfully, living in an aware way, really look at is this simple truth that you, can, that you can testify for yourself. Things do change, don't they? Slowly, quickly, unpredictably, but they do come and go. You may think, well, yeah, but so what? Uh, I know it comes and goes, but, but it wasn't right anyway. It shouldn't have happened in the first place. But if, <laughs> if you're looking at a really, whether sh things should or shouldn't is something other, but the way it is, is whether they should or shouldn't, it does arise and pass away, it does come and go. 
And you can't have permanent anger or despair or be permanently offended. It will we'll recognize it going the more that we're able to, re- to, to allow it to, to pass into us. Then we allow it to pass out. And then the other constant reflection is as you're watching all this stuff, who's watching? Who's watching what? Is that some thought that's watching or is it, where is it? There is the knowing, isn't there? There's the watching. And yet you can't find anybody or anything that's watching. So that all that we see and witness and respond to is not ourself. It's not something we own or belong to. It's something that passes through this pure mind, our true nature, our real home, our place of peace where there's no suffering. So the, the whole attitude behind practice is, is not to just fixate upon experiences, but to have the concentration that's steady enough to enable you to, to look at objects in this way that makes, enables you to realize the whole quality of looking, whether you're looking trying to see something special, whether you're looking in a way to try to make things go away or change it or or develop something out of it, but to actually take stock of the quality of awareness itself, to abide in it, is the, is the abandonment practice of abandoning that, that impatient, greedy, craving, irritated, suffering attitude that, that can be right there and even in our most profound or most uh, developed and concentrated meditations. You can take it right with you. And have concentrated suffering. <laughs> in, in simple tips, when you're doing a walking meditation, um, remember to keep that uh, evenness, stopping. What happens when you stop? There's a little moment of silence, isn't there? Maybe you, you're walking along, leaving the feelings and sensations, perhaps your mind wanders along a bit, and, blah, 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 and then stop. Oh, right, I'm standing. Standing, standing, okay, we are standing, right, now what should I do next? Turn around, and turn around, and then, oh, walking, okay, walking, feeling, feeling, birds, when am I doing this right? Is it going right? I don't know. Perhaps I should do it quicker or slower, or is this, should I be my feet or my nostrils, breathing, stand, twitching, stop. Oh, here I am standing still. It's a funny, cold day today, isn't it? Perhaps I should put my sweater on or muffler. Oh, that woman over there, she's got a nice hat on. Oh, right, here we are. Turn round, walk, walk, walk. Footsteps slide. Oh, the path's a bit funny. I'm sure my, feet, my socks are going to get wet. Oh, I'm thinking. Stop thinking. <laughs> stop it. Right. Okay, we are back. The mindfulness is working now. <laughs> really getting on there. <laughs> all that, all that. But every now and then it stops. And then when you stop, you go, oh. And you can't believe because stopping is nothing. So, stop. Oh, right. Okay, um, um, be with the breath, the body, here and now. That's it, it's in the here and now. 
and it's happened again. So you have to be very patient with that and just notice those times when it does stop and actually learn to, to linger in it. Life presents us with those opportunities. If you like the breathing, the in-breath and the out-breath, and you can use that as a way of, of calming and focusing and steadying and notice the, the times when the, 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 the cycle of thought processes stops or the breathing stops, the physical stopping, the beginnings and endings of things, like when, when this talk finishes. Is that it? No, I'll do something, I'll go on some practice now. What was that all about anyway? But there was a moment of stopping. And those are the things you, you want to notice, as well as all the the ongoing, so you can learn from all of it, the silence, the stopping, the arising, the changing, the pain, the relaxing, the letting go, the beginning again. And witness all of it. And just uh, realize in doing that, you're learning to open the mind and you're beginning to find a kind of, almost subconsciously, a touchstone of equanimity and poise and balance that will mature and ripen into a fully enlightened being. But it's not self. So I offer this for your reflection this morning.